to podcast number 37 here at Your Voice of the Arts with your host, yours truly, Joe Weber. Today we're going to focus on the career of George Miller. George Miller, an Australian citizen, has had an extraordinary career in filmmaking as a director, writer, and producer of some of the most original films of the last 50 years. His parents immigrated from Greece and his father changed the family name from Miliotis to Miller. His mother's family was exiled from Anatolia, now part of Turkey, in the vast population exchange of 1923, in which Greece and Turkey signed an agreement in Switzerland that forcibly sent 1.2 million Greek Orthodox Christians from their homes in what had been the Ottoman Empire to Greece, and forcibly sent 375,000 Muslims living in Greece to Turkey. After secondary school, Miller studied medicine at the University of New South Wales and completed his residency at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, Australia in 1972. He spent most of his time off crewing on short experimental films. During the same year that he finished his medical residency, Miller met Byron Kennedy at a film workshop at Melbourne University. They formed a production partnership which lasted until Kennedy's death in 1983. Miller made his directorial debut with the film Mad Max in 1979, which met with international success. The film, like its two successors, The Road Warrior and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, presents a post-nuclear world in which civilization as we know it has broken down into warring gangs fighting for a tank of gasoline. I'll let the narrator of The Road Warrior set the stage. My life fades. The vision dims. All that remains are memories. I remember a time of chaos. Ruined dreams. This wasted land. But most of all, I remember the road warrior. The man we called Max. To understand who he was, you have to go back to another time when the world was powered by the black fuel and the desert sprouted great cities of pipe and steel. Gone now, swept away. For reasons long forgotten, two mighty warrior tribes went to war and touched off a blaze which engulfed them all. Without fuel, they were nothing. They'd built a house of straw. The thundering machine sputtered and stopped. Their leaders talked and talked and talked. But nothing could stem the avalanche. Their world crumbled. The cities exploded. A whirlwind of looting. A firestorm of fear. Men began to feed on men. On the roads, it was a white line nightmare. Only those mobile enough to scavenge, brutal enough to pillage, would survive. The gangs took over the highways, ready to wage war for a tank of juice. And in 
this maelstrom of decay, ordinary men were battered and smashed. Men like Max, the warrior Max. In the roar of an engine, he lost everything. And became a shell of a man. A burnt-out, desolate man. A man haunted by the demons of his past. A man who wandered out into the wasteland. And it was here, in this blighted place, that he learned to live again.
to another edition of Listen on. This is the truth of it. Fighting leads to killing. And killing gets to warring. And that was damn near the death of us all. Look at us now. Busted up and everyone talking about hard rain. But we've learned by the dust of them all, barter towns learned. Now when men get to fighting, it happens here. And it finishes here. Two men enter... One man leaves. And right now, I've got two men. Two men with a gut full of fear. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. He's the ballcracker, death on foot. You know him, you love him. He's Blaster! <laughs> Wasteland. He's bad. He's beautiful. He's crazy. It's it's the man with no name. Hundred and simple. Get to the weapons. Use them any way you can. I know you won't break the rules. There aren't any. Both Beyond Thunderdome and The Road Warrior have bizarre and original imagery from the bare-assed macho warriors to the ad hoc vehicles ranging from souped-up hot rods, motorcycles, and power mowers to the weapons, which include spears, crossbows, a boomerang, and a chainsaw. I don't know whether in the late 70s and early 80s, people who resembled the characters in these movies wandered the towns and cities of Australia where Miller lives and makes his films, or they are simply a figment of his imagination. Next up, we have an audio clip of the ultimatum delivered by the Lord Humongous, leader of the outlaws, to those hardworking and thoughtful remnants of civilization who have managed inside their fortress to continue to pump oil out of the ground and turn it into gasoline. At a tense standoff, Lord Humongous tells the people inside the compound to just leave the gasoline and walk away and he will allow them safe passage. If you hear a voice yelling, give them nothing, that is the voice of one of the prisoners who is shackled to the front of an outlaw's vehicle. A poet in residence introduces Lord Humongous and sings his praises, 
telling everyone that nothing can escape the outlaws, only to have the feral kid played by a young boy named Emil Minty, who must be close to 50 now, fling the aforementioned boomerang which takes the life of the young male lover of the most fearsome outlaw of them all, who in turn goes berserk and has to be restrained by Lord Humongous himself. If you hear laughter, it is the outlaws laughing at their own poet-in-residence who in trying to retrieve the boomerang loses most of the fingers on one of his hands. The Lord Humongous, the warrior of the wasteland, the Ayatollah of Rock and Roller! I am gravely disappointed. Again, you have made me unleash my dogs of war. Look at what remains of your gallant scouts. Why? Because you're selfish. Hold your gasoline. You will not listen to reason. Now, my prisoners say, you plan to take your gasoline out of the wasteland. You send them out this morning to find a vehicle. A rig big enough to hold that fat tank of gas. What a puny plan. Look around you. This is the value of death. Nothing can escape! The Humongous rules the wasteland! Give them nothing! Blow it up! Humongous <laughs> will not be Boomerang has found its mark, and the outlaw's lover is dead. And the poet's fingers are gone. Humongous must contain his enraged and heartbroken warrior. Still, my dog of war, I understand your pain. We all are someone below, but we do it my way. We do it my way. Here is our ally. The gasoline will be ours. Then you shall have your revenge. 
Take him away. With all that violence and brutality, you wouldn't expect George Miller to put together a film like Babe about a very sweet and lovable little pig who has a knack for being able to herd sheep every bit as well as a border collie. But he did. Babe is not an animated film, but real farm animals are part of the cast, and film technology gives them the gift of speech with the help of several very fine actors. Let's listen now to an audio clip from Babe. That's a pig. They'll eat him when he's big enough. Will they eat us when we're big enough? Good heavens, no. The bosses only eat stupid animals like sheep and ducks and chickens. <laughs> that looks stupid, Mom. Not as stupid as sheep, mind you, but pigs are definitely stupid. Excuse me. No, we're not. Good heavens. Who are you? I'm a large white. Yes, that's your breed, dear. What's your name? I don't know. Well, what did your mother call you to tell you apart from your brothers and sisters? Our mom called us all the same. And what was that, dear? She, she called us all babe. Perhaps we shouldn't talk too much about uh, family. <laughs> <laughs> I want my mom. <laughs> You've got to be a brave boy now. I left my mother when I was your age, and my pups will have to leave me soon. But I'll keep an eye on you if you like, just till you find your feet. The little pig's a bit low. He's going to sleep with us, just till he finds his feet. Until he finds his feet. Nonsense. If you do want to do anything, you'll go outside, won't you? Good boy. What's your name, Pig? What does it taste like? Where did it come from? We Americans love stories about individuals who break the rules to get results. Often it's a rogue CIA agent or a tough cop who bends the rules to see that justice is done. I've been in the midst of a fascinating read about Eddie Gallagher, chief of a SEAL Team 7 platoon whose main reason for breaking the rules of military engagement was mainly for his own self-aggrandizement and career advancement. The book is called Alpha, Eddie Gallagher and the War for the Soul of the Navy Seals. 
Gallagher had succeeded in creating a myth around his performance as a Navy SEAL, which magnified his eagerness for and fearlessness in battle, as well as his number of kills. The book, written by a reporter for the New York Times named David Phillips, covers Gallagher's last deployment in Iraq and the battle to drive ISIS out of the city of Mosul. The platoon was there for support of the Iraqi army regulars and prohibited from deploying on the front lines. Gallagher and the platoon got around that by turning off their tracking devices. The following is an excerpt from the book. On the roof, they set up their rifles and dialed in the range. A platoon of Iraqi army regulars had pushed ahead and a firefight with ISIS was blowing up about a thousand meters north into the city. Through their scopes, Eddie and Tolbert could see Iraqi army trucks moving into position and squads of soldiers maneuvering around corners. Puffs of smoke rose over the neighborhood as grenades and mortars fired off. The two snipers hunted the rooftops ready to pick off ISIS fighters but buildings were blocking their view of the main fighting. They scanned for nearly an hour, but took no shots. Then Eddie said, I got something. Tolbert lifted his eye from his scope and tried to line up with Eddie, then peered back through the glass as Eddie talked him onto a courtyard in the middle distance. It took a moment for Tolbert to take in what was happening. The fighting was only a few blocks away, but there was no hint of it in the courtyard. In the morning light, a middle-aged man leaned one shoulder against a broad doorway and cocked his head to one side, watching a young boy chase after a soccer ball as it bumped across the dirt. What, the kid, Tolbert said? No, Eddie said, the man. Go ahead. Go ahead, Eddie said. Shoot him. It was as if Eddie was doing Tolbert a favor by offering him the first shot. Tolbert scanned for a gun or some military gear, a radio, anything that might make the man a target. There was nothing. Come on, shoot him, Eddie said. The chief was looking down his own rifle, finger on the trigger, but he wanted Tolbert to make the kill, like it was some sort of an initiation and he was daring the young sniper to do it, maybe even grooming him. Tolbert centered his scope on the man. But if Eddie thought Tolbert's trailer park roots made him an outlaw, it was just the opposite. It was true that Tolbert had grown up with nothing and clawed his way up like a character from a Victorian novel. His mother had multiple sclerosis and couldn't work. His father was almost never around, and when he was, it was usually trouble. He spent much of his boyhood in the Ozarks in a single wide so decrepit that when the family finally moved out, the local authorities had it condemned. They were poor enough that at times Tolbert shot squirrels and speared frogs to put meat on the table. This is where you don't want to be, his mother once told him, gesturing around the trailer. So go out there and find something better. Tolbert had every excuse to amount to nothing, but he just didn't have it in him. He wanted to be the best at something. There was no money for college, and his tiny rural high school was too small to have sports teams that might get him noticed. So the military seemed like the best way out. 
Both his parents had been in the Navy. He decided to go the same route. And when he heard in middle school that the elite of the elite in the Navy was the SEALs, that's what he announced he planned to do. His own mother just laughed at his announcement and told him he couldn't even pick up his own socks, so she didn't see how he was going to be a SEAL. That made him want it more. During high school, he trained relentlessly. He would pack the heaviest pots and pans in a backpack and go rucking through the woods or sit in a bathtub of icy water for as long as he could to try to toughen up for buds. Because Tolbert grew up with nothing, the SEALs to him meant everything. He pushed hard and refused to quit. Early in training, he fell off the back of a moving cargo truck and ended up in a medically induced coma for several days with serious internal bleeding. The Navy offered him an early medical discharge, but he wouldn't take it. He wanted to be someone that mattered. He wasn't going to let a near-death experience get in the way. Growing up, Tolbert had gotten a close-up view of every deadbeat vice and destructive lifestyle imaginable. He met scammers and liars, many of them supposed authority figures. He didn't consider it a bad upbringing because it forced him to decide early on who he was and what he wanted. It made him disciplined and hardened to outside influence. He didn't have to worry about fitting in because he never had. And so even if the chief he had admired was saying to do it, there was no fucking way Tolbert was going to shoot a guy who was just watching a kid play. At the same time, Tolbert also wasn't ready to tell his chief and former Bud's instructor to fuck off. Eddie had given him an order. Defying it would have consequences. He had to make it look like he was obeying. If he did it just right, he could scare the man and the boy inside away from the gunfire. He shifted his crosshairs off the man's torso, put them on a wall just over his head, he pulled the trigger. The high-velocity bullets smacked against the building, spraying concrete. Through his scope, Tolbert saw the man wince. Eddie, seeing that Tolbert had missed, immediately fired. His shot went wide. The man waved frantically to the boy, and they scrambled inside. Tolbert breathed a sigh of relief. He had just seen Eddie try to shoot a civilian for no reason. But at least the chief wasn't a very good shot. Over the next weeks, Tolbert was one of the few SEALs consistently given a front-row view to Eddie in action. He quickly realized that Miller had been wrong about Eddie. Things weren't just bad. They were, in fact, much worse. The after-action reports Tolbert quietly passed to the other snipers at the end of the day recounted a mix of sloppy practices screw-ups, and bizarre behavior he could only call madness. At times, Eddie would say he saw a target and fire, but Tolbert would swing his scope to see it and find nothing. Other times, he saw Eddie shoot at targets and miss, but still claim a kill. Eddie liked to regale the platoon with stories about kills at the end of each day. A few days after Eddie tried to shoot the man from the schoolhouse, he and Tolbert set up on a nearby rooftop, once again leaving the rest of the squad waiting down below in the trucks. 
The guys below heard the chief's sniper rifle echoing repeatedly over Mosul. Must be a lot of action, Dill thought. Eddie came down at the end of the day, pulled off his sweaty body armor back at their house, and announced he had shot 14 that day. The snipers gathered around to hear more. Eddie said he had seen squads of ISIS fighters in camo moving tactically to the northeast, block to block. He dialed in and picked them off one by one. Shit, 14, thought Dylan Dill. No one else had even seen ISIS yet. One kill would be headline news. 14 was epic. Eddie left to go change out of his gear. Tolbert remained behind, shaking his head and smiling. Total bullshit, he said. Eddie had fired a ton of shots, but he'd been firing almost directly to the east. The front line was several blocks north. He might have shot at 14 guys, but if he did, I'm pretty sure they were all Iraqi army regulars, Tolbert said, and he didn't hit any of them.
Closing the show with Franz Schubert's March Militaire. Folks, thanks for keeping me company. This is Joe Weber saying so long here from the Voice of the Arts. Thank you.